Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. Good morning. This is your host, a surprising voice you might think for the first Wednesday of the month. Thaddeus Romanski here taking the place of Deacon Mike Bovey. I mean, I can't really say I'm taking his place. Those are awfully big shoes to fill, aren't they, Dennis Maka? We're doing a little swapperoo. Yep. We're just doing some musical chairs. I'm taking this week. Deacon Mike will be on next week with Deacon Ralph Poyo, and I know a lot of you will be really excited to hear that interview um, Deacon Ralph Poyo on with Deacon Mike next Wednesday. In the second part of the show today, I'm going to be talking with the liturgical director at St. Thomas Aquinas Church in College Station, Adam Brill. We're going to be discussing all things Sacrosanctum Concilium, the document on the sacred liturgy from the Second Vatican Council. As you may know, the Red Sea Apostolate is spending this year of 2022 observing, learning about, celebrating the opening of the Second Vatican Council in 1962. It's the 60th anniversary of the opening of that sacred council, and we're going to talk about the liturgy and the the liturgy that the document Sacrosanctum Concilium informed. I think it's going to be a really lively discussion. It was. It was pre-recorded, so no phone calls in the second part of the show. And this is a pre-recorded opening, um, so no phone calls, but... We are so glad you're with us listening on KEDC 88.5 FM in the Brazos Valley, KYAR 98.3 FM in Central Texas, and KINF 107.9 FM in Palestine. You can also always get us online at redsearadio.org and on our phone apps, iPhone and Android. Speaking of Central Texas, I am pleased to have on our Director of Outreach and Evangelization, soon to be Deacon Robin Waters. Good morning, Robin. Good morning, Thaddeus. One correction. It's the vex, uh, director of evangelization <laughs> and outreach. I'm sorry. I'm I so knew, sorry. I knew I'm he so was going to bust you on the, reversing those two. <laughs> I mean, I got through that opening pretty much with with almost no mistakes, and then I had that I had that one little slip up. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. <laughs> well, you, you, did, you did excellent. I just I just want to make sure that the folks didn't get a get confused that my. My number one priority is evangelization, and, and that involves outreach indeed. quite often. Yes, indeed it does. And you are doing a fantastic job up there uh, evangelizing and out and reaching out to our, our parishes in the central Texas area. What's going on up there? Well, uh, we've been having a lot of different church events lately. Uh, a lot of parishes are having uh, fundraising meals. Uh, uh, the West Catholic, uh, West Catholic Daughters have one coming up. I believe it. I'm not going to say the date because I don't have it in front of me, but it's here. If you're listening to the radio, you'll hear the spot that's running. Uh, Abbott, uh, Michael Heart of Mary at Abbott had had a little fundraiser last Wednesday for their C, uh, CCE program. Uh, uh, Nativity of Blessed Virgin Mary had some awesome fried chicken last Sunday at the, his, over in Penelope. Robin, the CDA, the CDA meal, the Catholic Daughters of America grilled chicken meal is on March 6th. March 6th. Yeah. That's when our spot goes through on that day. Close. Yeah. 
Okay, so coming up for that event. So just just in general, and I think it's true here as well, it's wonderful for us to to start having those requests for parish announcements again. I mean, that is kind of one of the some of the lifeblood of our apostolate is localization and bringing together and building up the local Catholic family. It really is. It really you know, is. We want more and more. That, Go ahead, Robin. I was just going to say, when I first came on board with Red Sea, one of the first things that I learned from Dennis was that their mission, the local parishes, their mission is our mission. So we're here to support them and, and to help them to be successful in everything they do. Kind of a, kind of a mi casa es su casa kind of a view of things, right? I, I probably wouldn't put it that way, but... But for you, that sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that was Spanish for our home is your home. Ugh. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely our mission is is the mission of the churches here. And our uh, second part of this show coming up really does work with the mission of what's going on in our local churches. And we're very excited to have Adam Brill on for a full length interview on part two of Red Sea Roundup. So we're very excited. So stay tuned, people, on that. Uh, what's today? Um, uh, I know you're wearing the correct liturgical colors. I noticed you're wearing your purple I, I polo wear, shirt. I'm wearing purple. Um, Adam uh, was here earlier. We pre-recorded his segment, and uh, his his cross on his forehead was, I, I think, the biggest I've ever seen. That was seen. an impressive cross <laughs> of ashes. That was that was paste. That was a a paste on dried on his forehead a good two inches by two inches yeah. Yeah. and i'd say each arm of the cross was a one inch beam so yeah it took up a wow. majority of his forehead he it had was, some schmear on his on his head we were we were uh, having fun thinking about what would happen if he just kind of wrinkled his eyebrow a little bit it it was all going to come crumbling down so yep, yep. but we're all talking about the reason we're, we're talking about this is as you know folks today is ash wednesday the beginning of the solemn penitential season of Lent, the 40 days of preparation for the Passion of Christ. Yeah, I, I, this is actually my favorite time of year. Mm -hmm. I, I really do, um, res, it resonates well with me and my soul, and it, it helps me out a lot to, to kind of ground myself. Um, I, I've, I've had so much involvement with my family going back, going to the stations of the cross and benediction and, and just so many things that I, I hold dear that kind of roots me in my faith. I, I like the season of Lent actually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Three you know, Dennis, I was thinking as you, as you were saying that is, you know, when it's done well, Lent is really a reset. You know, we can reset uh, where we are with the Lord, reevaluate where we are with the Lord and kind of uh, really reflect on the things that that we need to do to to draw closer to, to him throughout the year and to really develop our relationship into to something that's powerful that so that we always lean on him and we're uh, in good times and in bad you know but yeah lent is a is a is a great uh, time of reflection um, i was just going to mention also as i was blessed this morning to be at a 6 30 a.m mass at st mary's in west and a was also blessed to be able to serve as an acolyte, as a an nice. elector, and also got to distribute ashes. So that was a, a really a great honor to be able to do that. That is nice. That is nice to do that. Did you make the big old behemoth crosses on people's foreheads? 
Well, I'm, I'm going to tell off on uh, Father Timothy. So <laughs> he, it was me, Father Timothy, Father John, and Deacon Ronnie Sakura distributing ashes. And when he blessed the ashes, I was holding the, the book that he was praying, getting the prayer from, and he was putting the holy water on them. And he kind of was missing the ashes. They were in these little bowls. And so when I went to start distributing, it was so dry if if my finger hadn't been my thumb hadn't been dirty, I might have licked it because I couldn't get <laughs> a whole. There was only a few drops of water, so so uh, whoever went to the six thirty a.m. at West, uh, they got a they got a, a cross, but it's not like the it's not like the one you described. It was a sprinkling, <laughs> more of the sprinkling of the ash rather than the smearing of the ashes. Yeah. So, yeah, we yeah. will be going Father tonight. I mentioned it after mass. He he said, I, I said, I guess I didn't put enough water in there in the. And uh, Deacon Ronnie, Ronnie had a nice little comment, which I won't say, but, but it was a, it, we had a little good laugh afterwards. Well, be sure, folks, to uh, not just come for your ashes on uh, Ash Wednesday, but to, to continue to participate throughout the uh, season of Lent in your Stations of the Cross uh, on Friday evenings at most parishes. Um, on extra mass times, whatever your Lenten practice, uh, extra and maybe things that you're you're leaving out, try to increase your spiritual life by increased prayer time, increased mass attendance. And, and speaking of uh, evangelization and outreach, <clears throat> Ash Wednesday is also a, a good, easy um, Catholic liturgical event to invite non-Catholic friends to. There's a lot of a lot of buzz in the in the culture over the last several years about Lent. There's a lot of interest by various um, Protestant denominations in uh, bringing that into their their life, their yeah. community life. Um, I was at at the Baptist Church here in town yesterday voting, and there was an advertisement in their uh, not their their narthex, you might say, um, for their ash. Wednesday service, they were gonna they were gonna be distributing ashes, hmm. uh, which is fascinating to think because uh, Baptists are not by uh, are are not liturgical people by uh, by custom, right, Robin? That's right, and they they wouldn't they wouldn't say that's liturgical at all. But you know the uh, uh, the Baptist Church here in West has been observing Lent. I don't think they distribute ashes, but they've been observing Lent for a few years. But it hasn't been very long that that was not even thought of exactly. you know, in, in the Baptist Church or other Protestant. I think they're they're realizing the beauty and the importance of this time, this season. Yeah, what do you think is uh, what do you think draws people to Ash Wednesday services? I mean, a lot of times Ash Wednesday Mass is more full or just as full as Christmas or Easter, and it's not a holy day of obligation. Well, no, that's right. But as you say, a, a lot of times there's more people there than on a holy day of obligation. But I would say that what draws them there is uh, this is uh, probably a surprise. I'd say the Holy Spirit. No, I'm just. <laughs> but seriously, yeah. uh, you know, sometimes it's obligation, but that's still the Holy Spirit working in your heart. Maybe you've been taught that since you were young. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a lot of people that are you know strong, uh, serious about their faith and really trying to continually improve it's it's that what we just spoke about uh, a time of of uh, repentance of penance and to uh, really get our, our relationship with the Lord uh, in, a, in good shape and which involves of course fasting and prayer and we, we heard the Lord say 
I can't remember the scripture, but uh, where they were trying to drive out a demon, and uh, and uh, and the Lord has said, you know, this one requires prayer, and sometimes it requires prayer and fasting. So, right, uh, right, right. Uh, I think those things bring people. Um, I wonder. Church. I wonder too if there is a sense on a, on a lot of people's hearts that um, just that <clears throat> that human kind of gnawing that uh, I'm not well. There's there's something that's not yeah. well well about me. All is not well, um, and I need to I need something to I need to connect with something that's going to make me well, and I need to maybe acknowledge that things are not well with me. And I think. Uh, Ash Wednesday does that to you. It's when you hear that person say, remember you are dust and to dust you shall return. That's jarring. Yeah. It is a, it is a reset. Well, it's time for a great reset for a lot of people and, and not for our world necessarily. Yeah, be careful how you throw that term around, buddy. The great reset. We all individually, I think, need to uh, reset our lives at, at, at times. And so take a look at your own soul, I guess, folks, uh, as we each do here and uh, see what you need to do to improve it uh, and give more glory to God and, and uh, more time to your families and live out your vocation as you're currently living in that state. So, And one of those other ways that Lent provides to reset and reevaluate is is penance, the emphasis on penance. And there will be a lot of penance services around yeah. uh, both of our listening areas. So we'll have uh, PSAs running for that. We'll have the information up on our website. So stay tuned for the announcements about the Lenten penance services and uh, recommit, all of us recommit to a more frequent attendance to confession. And some of the things that you can participate here locally, Robin had mentioned some in Central Texas, and uh, for certain there are things going on in East Texas that we probably will fail to mention here. We apologize. Um, but Palestine, give us a call. We'll be glad to announce more and more of your uh, an, a, events. But we have a women's discipleship series that's an evening of reflection. The second part is coming up on Thursday, March 31st. Come to Mass, but it starts um, at 6.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. for fellowship and Mass and and some talks. There's also uh, Our Lady of Mount Carmel Rosary Guild is having their annual, uh, not annual, but having a membership meeting on the 19th of March coming up with Mass at 8.15 in the morning and 9 o'clock in the morning uh, following with that meeting. We also have a, a prayer for Ukraine coming tonight at St. Thomas Aquinas uh, after their Ash Wednesday Mass. So go attend prayer at, for our world because it's in much need of prayer right now. Yes, and it is. speaking of St. Thomas Aquinas, we introduced yeah, so, our guest. That's right. So uh, after the break, we'll have Adam Brill and I talking about Sacrosanctum Concilium and the Divine Liturgy. Stay, Stay tuned, tuned, folks. Okay, welcome back to Red Sea Roundup. I'm your host, Thaddeus Romanski. You're listening to Red Sea Catholic Radio, KDC 88.5 FM in the Brazos Valley, KYAR 98.3 FM in Central Texas, and KINF 107.9 FM in Palestine. Call in normally at uh, 85 Love Red Sea, but today it's a pre-recorded offering, so you can't make any phone calls 
for this episode. But in the future, think about it. We'd love to hear from you. I, as I said in the first part of the show, I am here talking to a guy I always love to talk to, Adam Brill, the liturgical coordinator at St. Thomas Aquinas. What is the exact title again? I always get your title wrong. My exact title is liturgy director Okay. uh, with the subtitle as assigned, task assigned. Do you have one of those little director's chairs since you're the liturgy director? (laughs) No, no. Haven't talked to Father Albert about that yet? No, he did give me, uh, I was sitting in this really, really small wooden chair uh, (laughs) for a couple of years that uh, it probably helped with my posture, but it was a really bad chair. And uh, randomly he just was sitting down. He's like, wait, I need to get you a better chair. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. It's nice to have a pastor that that looks out for your your bodily and your spiritual health, right? Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, uh, we are here to talk about this sacred council. Mm-hmm. Second Vatican Council, but even specifically the document Sacrosanctum Concilium, which in translation is this sacred council, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's how the document starts. This is the document on the, this is the, the constitution on divine worship. Yeah. So, and on the sacred liturgy. On the sacred liturgy. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we're going to be talking all about the, primarily the mass, although it, parts of it do cover the liturgical calendar, they cover the divine office, mm-hmm. the liturgy, the hours, but we're going to spend most of our conversation on on the mass, right. th- yeah. those portions of it. Um, I'm going to go a little bit off the beaten path on you. Okay. Um, what's a, what's something that you, that you love about, about this document or that, what, what, what about it is particular close to your heart or is, has mm-hmm. been important in maybe your, your development, your intellectual development? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I mean, this document is like a lot of the the council documents. They are fairly beautifully written. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of thought that went into them, um, and this document specifically. Uh, there's only, if you look back at the history of the church, there's very few documents written by popes or councils or the Vatican itself on the liturgy. Um, really? Yeah, uh, Pope Pius the Twelfth. Um, was actually the first pope who released an uh, encyclical on the liturgy. Okay. Uh, that's Mediator Dei, okay. um, Mediator of God. You've, I think you've mentioned mm-hmm. that in previous conversations. Okay. Yeah, which uh, if anybody's doing a deep dive on these documents, reading those two together is very, very necessary to understand the history and the development of the liturgy. Um, because Pius Twelfth wrote that when what was called the liturgical movement was occurring. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was when a lot of the priests were in Europe were saying, hey, we need to do some reforms. We need to engage people more in the liturgy and bring it to the people a little bit more, make it a little bit more accessible. Um, and this document comes as a fruition of all of that scholarly, but also pastoral work of those uh, priests and people who were bringing the liturgy, uh, breathing life into it in a new way. Uh, and so that's, uh, th- this document takes something, all the theology that the church has always had, uh, but is really hard to find written down mm. in a lot of places uh, and puts it very clearly. Kind of puts it all in one place. Yeah. yeah. So Sacrosanctum builds on Mediator Dei, which mm-hmm. was a, an encyclical of Pope mm-hmm. Pius XII. And that's that's neat that you you brought in Pius XII because where we mm-hmm. had agreed that we were going to start yeah. was on, talk a little bit about the reform to Holy Week right. that had already happened before the 
Second Vatican Council. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people think that uh, uh, there are certain certain people in the church who think that liturgy uh, never changed for 2,000 years until the Second Vatican Council, and that's incorrect. Uh, and there are people that think that it was always completely changing and reforming and extravagantly, and that's also incorrect. Oh. Um, and then there are people who uh, look at it historically and realize that there is an organic development that from the very beginning of the church, there were things that started uh, and then eventually changed and moved. And we accrued new traditions. We stripped some old traditions. Uh, and then you had these occasional big events where like a pope or a council would say, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. So we're going we're gonna to change things up uh, to just to make it clearer or simpler, um, make things more understandable. Um, think about we've had how many saints canonized over 2,000 years. Uh, if we had all of them on the liturgical calendar, every day would be a feast day of some kind. You wouldn't have. Hey, I'm not going to complain <laughs> about that. I'm not going to complain about that. Yeah. But it'd be it'd be hard to enter into non-feast days. Exactly. Right? We we need that time, right? I mean, we're we're starting Lent today, Ash Wednesday, right? Right. Um, we need that time of fasting and preparation before the feast, and uh, so little things like that, like stripping the calendar of saints who uh, aren't people aren't as devoted to that have fallen out of a use or understanding, um, things like that always happened uh, organically to uh, to allow new devotion, new mm-hmm. spirit and life in, to mm-hmm. flow into liturgy. Mm-hmm. Um, you think about all the saints that we've had canonized in the last few years, whether by uh, Pope Francis, John Paul II, Benedict, there's been some great saints that have been added to the calendar um, that people have a great devotion to. I mean, John Paul himself celebrating his feast day is a great day mm-hmm. that many of us here uh, celebrate. Uh, but some random Roman saint in the second century, no one has a great devotion to. Um, similarly, though, like that, that's the Sacrosanctum Concilium has a lot of those reforms for the calendar and for different rites. Uh, but sometimes people take, people, popes, the councils have taken looks at uh, larger editions of uh, rites, not just a couple saints here or there. Uh, and one of those reforms was uh, in Holy Week. Uh, 1955. So, like like we said, Pope Pius the uh, Twelfth, um, coming on the heels of the liturgical movement, we had all these scholars who were able to get new translations or old editions of missals of uh, sets of ceremonials for Holy Week and stuff. And these scholars are brilliant. I'm more brilliant than I'll ever be. Uh, being able to speak five six languages fluently, being able to even speak Latin fluently as a dead language. They're still able to talk to each other fluently in Latin. Wow. Um, I can barely speak one language. Right. Yeah, I'm horrible at English. That's why I tell my <laughs> wife all the time, how can I learn another language? Um, and they're having all these things and they're coming together and they're saying, well, there's a lot of accretions that started uh, that obfuscate, that, that shade the real rights. Um, you had some movements happen that... Uh, gotten in the way of truly understanding Holy Week and truly entering into Holy Week. Uh, so Pope Pius XII basically created a, a committee, a commission of uh, liturgical scholars. Let me, let me hop in and ask a quick question. Mm-hmm. Did the reform to Holy Week, did that come after Mediator Day or before? Oh, gosh. You're the historian, not me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't okay, have we'll an have answer to check to on that, folks. We'll, yeah, we'll, we'll check have to on check on that. On that. Um, but it, it it's all in, in line in his head, whether yeah. it happened uh, A or B first. Um, but it all was this context of uh, this reform needing to happen to help streamline things and open up the riches of the, the faith to uh, to the faithful. 
Uh, and so the church, uh, the, the Pope getting this commission together, um, got some of the, the scholars of the day, uh, whether they be spread throughout Europe or uh, whether they be at the, uh, the special universities in Rome mm-hmm, proper mm-hmm. Uh, or on the committees in the Vatican on liturgy. Uh, and he got them together and he said, hey, like, let's let's do some reforms. Let's change some things. Let's shake some things up, um, which some people uh, currently today, you're, there's some debate about it as to whether those reforms should have been done. Some people who are wanting to go back to uh, the pristine versions and they'll just keep going back and back and back and back. Right. Um, Where does it stop? Right. Exactly. Are we going to celebrate the missile of 1800 or 800 or uh, 200 or like there? there's... There's moving backwards now, this um, false, uh, it's an antiquarianism that, yeah. that pulls yeah. in, uh, uh, and a nostalgia that pulls in things that um, aren't realistic to today um, and aren't looking at the needs that were proper. Um, so the rights themselves were for, reformed. Um, I don't, I don't want to get into the minutiae. Yeah, and we don't, thing. and we don't need to, but the, um, really the point but, of it, yeah, go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. I mean, one point that I was going to bring up is, uh, there's a name on that committee that you'll hear about and that's what you're hearing about it and why people want to go back to pre-55 it's because somebody on the commission who was doing that was uh, Archbishop Annibale Bunini who helped reform the missile that we have today. Ah, uh, okay. So, yeah. and we'll, maybe we'll go yeah. back to that right. later on in the conversation. Yeah. So we have these, we have these reforms to the celebration of the sacred liturgy that are happening. There's, there's a very specific and, and notable one about 10 years before the council, a little less than 10 years before the council, you're saying. Mm-hmm. And then your, your point also was that there were periods in the church, even before that, over, over its whole lifetime right. of reassessing the liturgy, oh, yeah. um, updating it, uh, trimming it, expanding certain other... I think mm-hmm. I, I read somewhere in the... I forget the Jesuit who wrote the history of the Roman Missal um, yes, mm-hmm. he, he talked about how one of the things that Trent did away with was there had been, it didn't completely do away with votive masses, but it mm-hmm. said, hey, these are, these are mm-hmm. getting out of control how many votive masses are being, are being offered and, yeah. and, and why they're being offered. There's, an, a, there's some clerical, there's some abuse there. Right. And you see that in, in the Second Vatican Council, that's part of their reforms is saying, uh, there were a lot of priests who weren't following the rites and the rubrics and things, and we needed them to start following them properly. Um, green days uh, is what they're called, fairy old days in ordinary time, mm. as we would call them now, right? Um, before the council, you had, you almost never saw green vestments. You never mm. celebrated green day because either uh, there were a saint, like we said, so many saints on the calendar that you celebrated all of them, or uh, all these votive masses that priests were celebrating instead of uh, the days the that can be celebrated, the ordinary time days, ferial days, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And what what having the um, ordinary time, one of the things that you you notice is you do get into a rhythm. There's there's a rhythm of liturgical life that that mm-hmm. allows for that to develop. That right. that oscillation between ordinary time and now we're in a liturgical season. Or here's an important you know, solemnity that that's going to be celebrated today. So there, there are these reforms that are kind of organic to the church's life. Um, and that is the, is the lead up to Sacrosanctum Concilium at the second Vatican council. Now 
the phrase that probably everyone, I would say, everyone knows Mm -hmm. if they know one quote from the Second Vatican Council is that the the Mass is the the Eucharist is the source and the summit of the Christian life, Mm -hmm. and that actual phrase doesn't actually come from. Sacrosanctum Chilium, it comes from Lumen Gentium, one of the other documents. Right. But something like a phrase like that is used in Sacrosanctum Concilium. So this document on the sacred liturgy, how does how does it what what is it getting at? What is it trying to express or have the faithful understand by saying that that the Eucharist is the source and the summit of the Christian life? Yeah, what does the, it mean by those terms? Yeah, Lumen Gentium says, like, specifically that phrase very yeah. succinctly, the Eucharist is the source and summit of the faith. Sacrosanct Concilium says, the liturgy is the summit toward which the activity of the church is directed, and at the same time, it is the font from which all her power flows. That I think that they basically stretch out that yeah. understanding a little bit more, yeah. um, make it more understandable to, to anybody, that uh, our faith is is directed towards something, right? Like, um, it's not this nebulous, uh, understanding of, of like a contemplative mystical distant thing. There is a, there's a practical direction towards which we orient our lives and our, in our religion. And primarily that being worship of God, um, in the liturgy, uh, and, and the sacraments being those tangible signs of those interior spiritual graces, that they they direct us towards God easily because we are incarnate beings. We are physical beings that need those those interactions, those Catholic calisthenics, up, down, sit, kneel, stand. Um, we need the the smells and the bells. We need uh, all the senses to come together to help us understand our faith and then to orient us towards God. Uh, we could have a religion built just purely on social justice things, right? But uh, that would miss its mark. It wouldn't be oriented back to, towards God, and it wouldn't have a purpose, right? Like, why would we feed the homeless, clothe the naked, visit mm-hmm. the imprisoned? Why would we do any of that if it's not flowing from something? Right. What makes that good? What makes that just? Right. right. Yeah. And so we have our worship of God that orients our lives, that we should be turning towards him to adore him, to love him and to give him the worship uh, that he deserves as our creator and our sanctifier, redeemer, um, as our as as the one who saves us um, and gave his life for us. But then when we've given that worship, it also sends us out, uh, like the ending of the Mass, right? It's go in peace. Go out into the world and do good. Um, take the graces, take the, the message, take the wisdom and the faith out into the world as well. Uh, so uh, that source and summit... Uh, and and font are all this kind of image of orienting us towards God to then go out into the world. And as well as it, it kind of gives a nice hierarchical structure a little bit there, which mm-hmm. the churches loves hierarchy, right? <laughs> so, and, and then sort of flowing out of that, once we understand that the liturgy is our source of the Christian life, it's mm-hmm. what feeds us, Right. nourishes us, mm-hmm. but then also it's the end goal to which we're, we're pointing. And, yeah. And because uh, when we go out, we have to come back. Yeah. 
we will run out. I mean, a battery. It's a constant you put, going out and coming back. Yeah, you get those rechargeable batteries and you put them in a mic pack or something and they die at some point and you need to put them back on the charger. Yeah. Uh, and then at some point, those batteries uh, will will go away. <laughs> they you won't never want to be, be caught anymore. with a mic that has its batteries go out, folks. Right, it's right. embarrassing. Uh, but in our lives, we, we receive graces uh, from the liturgy, from the faith, and go out into the world and come back. But then we'll also meet our end goal of the eternal worship of God in heaven. Right. Union with God. Right. And so knowing that, that then flows into another phrase that's not maybe as well known, but people have probably heard it, that Vatican II wanted the mass to be characterized by full and active participation. Mm -hmm. Now there's a lot of debate. There has been a lot of debate over the decades of Mm -hmm. what exactly full and active participation looks like right in your training your scholarly formation what was sacrosanctum concilium driving at when it said full and active participation so uh as with everything i think you'll appreciate connecting back to the the history of it and the the where the origins of it Mm -hmm. um that phrase came from the liturgical movement from its very very beginning at least codified within the church with document by Pope Pius X uh, called Trale Solicitudini. Uh, that is his instruction on sacred music. So this is back in 1903. Oh, wow. Uh, this is way before the council. This is way before Pius XII publishing Mediator Day and Reforming Holy Week. Um, he published this... Saint do- Pope Pius X. Correct, yes. Uh, he published... And, and this, this is a, a pope who didn't have a whole lot of formal training with music necessarily, um, but music was so dear to him that uh, he, he saw its central importance in the liturgy, um, which you think historically about the music that the church has produced, all the classical music, the palestrina, all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. um, that there is so much beauty there. Uh, but you had a lot of churches actually uh, abusing that uh, and not following the prescripts of the church on what should be sung. Wait. Um, <laughs> Church is not following right. what's yeah. instructed about the music. Uh-huh. I can't. I can't believe that. Um, and so he was asking the churches to get back to uh, the the music that the church provides. And, and, and the name of the encyclical one more time. Uh, Tra le solicitudini. Um, it's one of the few documents that we reference. That's technically Italian. Uh, the Italian title. It has a Latin title, but most people don't use it. They just use the Italian title when he wrote it. Uh, so it's on I mean, the land, music. the language of opera. I mean, why wouldn't, <laughs> why would you not use the Italian, right? Sure. Um, so in, in his document, uh, he's asking for a return to sacred music, uh, and a reform of the sacred music, uh, to, to make it more proper and uniform. Um, and so he's talking about liturgy and I'll just read a, a brief little part about it. Um, he says, Filled as we are with the most ardent desire to see the true Christian spirit flourish in every respect and be preserved by all the faithful, we deem it necessary to provide before anything else for the sanctity and dignity of the temple in which the faithful assemble for no other object than that of acquiring the spirit from its foremost and indispensable font, which is the active participation in the most holy mysteries and in the public and solemn prayer of the church. Active participation. Yeah. So he calls this, he, he, he's looking at it, instead of doing a lot of reform on the rights, which which would eventually happen and be called for, 
Um, he's looking at one of the most integral parts for the faithful to experience is the music. Um, I think you guys probably know people who uh, they church shop based on the music that's done um, or they go to a specific mass based on the style of the music. Uh, that's what I can neither <laughs> confirm nor deny that that happens. I can neither confirm nor deny that any of our parishioners do it at St. Thomas. Um, but he's saying right there that active participation uh, is so influenced by the music mm-hmm. uh, and that doing music properly needs to be addressed and it, it needs to be brought back to do it in the way the church envisioned. Uh, so that way the faithful could actively participate. Uh, and it, in this time, he's not saying that the faithful are going to be singing the hymns uh, specifically uh, because at that time, I mean, 1900, you had literate people, uh, but hymnody was not something that was done heavily in the Catholic church. Uh, what you sang at those times were the antiphons. Those were the things that the choir sang most properly. Uh, the entrance antiphon, offertory antiphon, communion antiphon. Uh, and then they would sing sequences or any other special piece that was written. But it would all those things would be in the liturgical books themselves, not something that was found in a hymnal. If they sang something else, they might occasionally sing a hymn if there was a place like after they finished the communion antiphon, like you, sometimes we sing two communion hymns um, here today, uh, they might sing another piece. But often then they would actually sing like a Palestrina motet or something, mm. um, which he's calling for a return to that rather than singing um, something that's from uh, the secular world, something outside that has no relation to God. Uh, so that was already happening in, it was. in the early 20th century. It was, yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. People don't, don't really realize that that's happening. Um, um, Protestant church music, has that already been started to be imported? It was starting to be imported. And you had, um, I mean, you, you had secular music, you had opera pieces. So he's acknowledging that as well as he, he's trying to push both extremes out as to say, um, like the Palestrina music can be taken to an extreme mm-hmm. where you've got opera music that isn't even Christian in any way. It just, right. it sounds more like chant and stuff in Palestrina, but it's it's not. It's opera. It's something outside it. You had these large orchestras. Um, you think about a lot of those pieces written by Beethoven and Bach and stuff, and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of those pieces aren't actually written for the church. They're written for concerts. They took church texts, like the Curie, the mass setting. They took those and they made them a concert. And some people were importing those into the mass and trying to use those. Uh, but that's not what the church envisioned either. So uh, he's trying to say, hey, let's get back to how the church wants it to be so that way the faithful can more actively participate. Um, and so then, well, I yeah. just want to just dwell or, or re- recapitulate what you just said. Th- this encyclical from from a revered saint, mm-hmm. Pope Pius X, is evidence that there was liturgical abuse Mm-hmm. Before the Second Vatican Council, that's yeah. what you're. That's what you're saying. Yeah, pretty you're, much. You're submitting that as yeah. as evidence. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, no, that's good to get out there. Yeah. No pope has ever written something without something being done in opposition to it. Really. Mm-hmm. Um, they may write it positively, but they're usually writing it to address an abuse of some kind. Yeah. To address um, a problem. Yeah. yeah. I mean, all the early councils. You think about. Council of Nicaea, uh, Constantinople, Jerusalem, uh, the the apostles meeting in Jerusalem when they're saying, 
hey, uh, can we eat pork? And do uh, these Christians that weren't Jewish need to be circumcised? There were people saying, hey, yeah, they need to be circumcised. And so the apostles got together and they said, no, we're going to stop this abuse. <laughs> right. That's been historically how the church has addressed things, that it's saying, I'm seeing an abuse or an about to be abuse kind of thing happening. I'm going to address it. I might address it positively rather than just a anathema, a condemnation. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, Pope Pius X definitely saw abuses happening and saying, hey, like, let's let's address these abuses. And so Sacrosanctum Concilium is an example of one of those positive mm-hmm. addressings. Right. It's it's um, it's like you said, gathering together everything that the church has has said about the sacred liturgy, trying to put it all in one place and to um, give it a, a solid theological mm-hmm. framework and explanation. Yeah. And then it outlines after that theological discussion, practical reforms that can be done to help that be yeah that the section of norms of the for the yeah. for the liturgy right. so kind of moving maybe into some of that that mm-hmm. element and you're listening again to adam brill who is the liturgical director at saint thomas aquinas in college station we're talking about sacrosanctum concilium the constitution from the second vatican council on the sacred liturgy it's a pre-recorded interview so you can't call in today but you know, any other time when we're live, we would love to hear from you. Um, so what is what does the document say in your mind uh, is the greatest importance in uh, the celebration of the liturgy? So what you brought up to the previous question being the uh, active participation of the faithful, um, that's that's expressed as the greatest need of reform and the vision of all the reforms should have that in mind. It specifically says in the restoration and promotion of the second liturgy, this full and active participation by all the people is the aim to be considered before all else. Um, so it's not saying that people's participation is the greatest part of the liturgy, mm-hmm. but it's saying that that really has central importance in how things are going to be done from here on forward. Yeah, uh, And that things are going to be changed in such a way to make that noticeable. Uh, but then you look at the the rest of the text and you see it, it talks so heavily about sacred scripture. And it, I mean, it literally says that sacred scripture is of greatest importance in the liturgy uh, because you have a lot of people uh, who rightly criticize Catholics for not knowing the Bible. Um, and they said, hey, uh, let's break that norm that sacred scripture is integral to the liturgy. And it, it always was, um, but acknowledging that it should be seen that way even more. And then on top of it, just the reality of uh, expressing the divine worship that's given to God and the sanctification of the people mm-hmm. um, as the central purpose of liturgy uh, and that that is the reason it exists. And so that should be seen as its its greatest purpose and end. Yeah, I, I think we we um, we exchanged some, some notes beforehand and I... And I pulled out that um, in number 51, it says that the, quote, the treasures of the Bible mm-hmm. need to be, quote, opened up more lavishly so right. that richer fare may be provided for the faithful at the table of God's word. I said, that kind of reads like a little bit of an indictment of the mass that was in existence at the time of the council. Yeah, which which is interesting. It is and it isn't um, because we, at Trent, the basically the council that created it didn't create out of nowhere. It 
took the missiles that were existing and codified them. But um, the but the Latin mass that we know, that's the mass of Trent, yeah, essentially. Right. Um, but at Trent, they actually said that we should have more scripture in the mass. <laughs> but you also had the Protestant churches that were talking so much about scripture and changing the services to make it so scripturally focused that there was this hesitation to really bring out scripture a little bit more. So that way we wouldn't be seen as Protestant. Okay, so now let me stop you right there. Mm-hmm. So now what you're telling me is that a church council, uh-huh. in this case, Trent, said the mass should have this aspect to it, mm-hmm. more scripture. Mm-hmm. But then the books that were actually written mm-hmm. after the council didn't do what the council said. Sure. So you're saying that that already happened Yeah. in church Kinda. history. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. I just wanted to yeah, set in the stage for clar- clarify the that <laughs> clarify that for yeah. our listeners. That's good. Yeah. Um I mean the council fathers ha- loved scripture. I mean, you think of any of the saints uh I meant that Borromeo. Yeah. I, I meant the Trent council yeah. fathers. Yeah. yeah. Any of the saints before I mean, historically, just the saints love scripture. Uh and and to accuse us as Catholics of being a scriptural as not utilizing scripture really doesn't look at at least the shining lights of our faith. Yeah. Um, sure, maybe the individual people may not be super well-versed in Scripture. I am not super well-versed in Scripture personally. I get all my Scripture from the liturgical books, but that's because I'm a liturgist. Um, but the the church has always seen Scripture as of central importance as well. And that, I mean, that's really the words of Christ himself, straight in Scripture. Like you're not going to find them anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the council asked for more Scripture at, at Trent, but they didn't want to be seen as Protestant into Protestant. So they were hesitant. Uh, and then, but then also to acknowledge that there is so much scripture in the liturgy as it already is. Um, when, like I mentioned the antiphons a little bit earlier. Mm, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I think I see where, I yeah. think I know where you're going. So the antiphons, which hardly any churches sing. Uh, if you come to St. Thomas, you'll hear them a little bit more. We don't do all the antiphons all the time, but we're incorporating them a little bit more. If you come to Mass at St. Mary's, you will hear the antiphons. Okay. Um, if you go to daily Mass at St. Thomas, Father will read the antiphons. He won't sing them, but he will yeah. read them. Um, 98% of those antiphons are Scripture. Right. Straight from Scripture. Right. And it's the church, having meditated upon the mysteries of the church, pulls out the Scripture that is relevant to the liturgy being celebrated whether it be the memorial of a martyr or a virgin or a pope or a saint of some kind, or it be a ferial day in ordinary time, or whether it be a ferial day in Lent in the penitential feel or Advent in the expectant feel, um, all those antiphons are pulled from Scripture. And when you look at the Missal, it gives you one verse of Scripture. But the texts that are meant to be sung actually have a full set of stanzas of Scripture that's added on top of it. That mm. You have eight or nine verses of Scripture. So if you had that... And you have all three antiphons being sung and you have all those scripture verses being pulled out, which often those are mostly psalmody, but still the Psalms being so integral to the spiritual life of most mystics and saints that the Psalms really encapsulate our spiritual life, our emotions, uh, that it pulls out um, so much more of the faith when you actually give the texts that are given there. Um, In the pre-Vatican II Missal, you had an epistle, it was read, so a letter of Paul from some kind. And then you had uh, a tract or a gradual, depending on the season, whether it be Lent or not. It's basically what we have now as the responsorial psalm, but mm-hmm. much shorter. And it wasn't really a responsory. It was just, it was a psalmody of some kind, a, a verse or two. 
and then you had the Alleluia, and then you had a gospel. And that was uh, a much smaller, so that's a much smaller section, right? You don't have an Old Testament and a New Testament reading. And the, the psalmody that's offered in the gradual or the tract is much shorter than what we have in the responsorial psalms. But you do have plenty of scripture there. The Council Fathers at Vatican II saying, let's add even more. Let's add even more scripture. Uh, because there is so much beauty in the scripture that is overlooked, misunderstood, um, or that people just don't hear that often. Um, and that, that is very relevant to the Eucharistic mysteries. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a little bit of contention around how the lectionary was created because the council asked for the, the riches of liturgy to show the riches of the scripture. Pre-Vatican II, all the scriptural text for each liturgy was relevant to that specific liturgy. It wasn't walking you through the Bible in any kind of real chronological fashion. Post-Vatican II, having this now three-year Sunday cycle, two-year daily cycle, what they're trying to do is heavily walk you through Scripture. So when you go to daily Mass, if you're doing the Ferial Days in Ordinary Time for eight weeks straight, which we just did, I mean, if you didn't celebrate the saints and stuff, we just had eight weeks of Ordinary Time, you would have read through whole, almost whole books of scripture straight through because that's basically how yeah. it arranges it. Yeah. They're not as connected to the liturgical action that's happening, but the desire was to pull people into the scriptures. So that way when they're hearing the scripture more and entering into the word of God, that they can enter into liturgy and worship. Right. And God. then that brings us to the place of the, the renewed place of the homily. Right. Yep. In that, that Sacrosanctum Concilium called for. And if you're, exposing the faithful to more of scripture and then you're giving them homilies the way that the document intends. And I'll let you speak about that. You're also helping to form Catholics and how they should interpret scripture when, when they do engage with it on, on their own. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, before Vatican II, the, the way the, the homily was seen, uh, by most people is that the homily was actually kind of like a break in the liturgy. It was a pause. Um, if you ever go to a Latin mass that we celebrate or any of the other parishes happen to have, uh, when the priest finishes the gospel, he takes off what's called a maniple. It's upon his wrist. Um, it's a vestment that very few priests wear today, but, uh, father Albert does and some other priests do. Um, he takes off the maniple and lays it on top of the missile, basically saying, all right, I'm pausing this liturgy here at the altar and I'm going to go speak at the ambo. Uh, and so the ambo where, where the, the homily is done was seen as not as much of a liturgical place, but as, uh, a, a, a place of a, a directing authority and the priest teaching and giving, um, direction to the faithful. Um, so you often had, uh, announcements read at that point, uh, if there were announcements read, uh, by the priest saying, oh, we've got the fish fry this day, or we've got this or in that. The or middle, other. In the middle right, of in the, the middle of the mass, liturgy. In the okay. middle of the homily, right before the homily or right after the homily, one of the two. Um, mm. That's where most parishes do the announcements uh, in the 62 form um, because it's seen as not a part of the liturgy, um, which actually, if you go to St. Thomas right now, you'll see the way that we do announcements is we do the announcements before mass even starts. Because the way the current missile has it is that the best place for it is right after the prayer after communion. And to me, that also feels kind of jarring. You're breaking up the liturgy 
and inserting, you said this prayer, stand, say this prayer, sit, listen to these announcements, stand, final blessing. It's a little jarring as well. So we do the announcements before mass because they're not liturgical. So we separated them. Uh, but in the 62 missile, the priest would do the announcements at the homily, at the place of the homily, uh, because it wasn't seen as part of liturgy. And then you really wouldn't have properly so-called a homily. You'd have a sermon. Uh-huh. So those two words being distinct is that a sermon is more of a catechesis. It's more of a teaching on some tenet of the faith, um, which uh, means that in some places that can be very, very academic. That it's just like, here's the teaching of, here's the, the catechism laid out this way, this, this, this. Uh, on the Feast of the Assumption, here is the teaching of the Assumption line by line kind of thing. Uh, and that can be very helpful in teaching the faith. Um, and so you actually had a lot of people get a lot of their formation on the doctrines of the church through these sermons, uh, which today you don't see as much, right? Um, you could say maybe that's a loss uh, that, that occurred is that um, you don't have the teachings from the pulpit, um, but we've moved that more catechetical formation to the classrooms, um, which hopefully the classrooms take up and, and do well. So that way the people can still learn the faith. But the, the council fathers asked that the homily be uh, made a homily instead of a sermon. And so that way the spiritual riches that we just pulled out from the readings can be contextualized to the spiritual life of the faithful. Uh, so it's more, it's meant to be more of a prayerful spiritual meditation on the faith and on the readings that you just heard. So that way uh, we can take those readings into our lives actually apply them rather than just hearing something and and not applying it. Um, something that seems distant and not knowing what to do with it. Some teaching or some scripture that we don't know how to apply to our lives. They wanted the homily to actually help us connect the scripture to our lives. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's a, that's a good place for us to kind of end. We've got about three and a half minutes left. I think we learned this morning that there were reforms to the liturgy that antedated the Second Vatican Council. So it was carrying on that um, reforming nature of the church, that organic development. Semper which, reforma, yeah, mm-hmm. always reforming. Always reforming. Uh, we learned that there are, there are times in the church history where councils called for things and then the implementation of those things didn't follow what the council asked for. So that's nothing, that's nothing new. Mm -hmm. Um, We also discovered that Pope Pius X, he was drawing, he kind of introduced this idea of full and active participation Mm -hmm. through his addressing of an abuse that was going on in the pre-Vatican II mass in regards to the music. So we know that there was liturgical abuse or um, problems going on before the Second Vatican Council. So you've really, you've really drawn a lot of uh, interesting hmm. lines of, of thought for us this morning, and I really appreciate you being on. I think the way I'm going to throw it to you for maybe one minute where would you suggest that somebody, is there a particular place that you would suggest somebody maybe start or focus on if they were going to pick up Sacrosanctum Concilium? I mean, they could just read it straight through, but are, is there a particular, you know, maybe section or, or place in it that you would recommend that they start? 
if they only have limited time? Uh, if they only have limited time, it really is just the uh, the introduction on on what the liturgy is and why the council is doing it, uh, and then um, like that first section on the nature of the sacred liturgy and it's important in the church's life. So that first um, chapter. That first chapter. Uh, but once you even it, it'll get into the norms a little bit, um, but just focusing on more of the the theological side of things and just yeah. reflecting on those paragraphs. Um, I I personally think that's great spiritual fodder for our prayer lives and for engagement in the liturgy. Well, I want to I want to thank Adam Brill for coming on with us this morning. I hope you enjoyed our conversation about Sacrosanctum Concilium and the Second Vatican Council. Maybe you know that we're currently doing a study of the four constitutions of the Second Vatican Council. And we're planning on starting another series of those after Easter. So stay tuned uh, to Red Sea Catholic Radio for information about how you can sign up for that next round of the document study. And I hope that we can get Adam back on and hear from him more uh, as we go through this year, because we are marking the, the end of the Second Vatican Council. So thank you or the opening of the Second Vatican Council, the 60th anniversary. So thank you for being with us this morning on Red Sea Roundup. You were here on short notice for me, Adam. Thanks for the for the help. Thanks for having me. And uh, listen next week when Deacon Mike Bovey will have on Deacon Ralph Poyo.